Physics World. Hello and welcome to this Physics World podcast. I'm James Dacey, the multimedia editor for the magazine. By the end of this programme, we're hoping that you'll be sprinting to your nearest bookstore, or at least rushing to an online retailer. That's because today we're going to be talking about our favourite physics books reviewed in 2014. And then towards the end of the programme, we'll reveal the choice we've made for our book of the year. I'm joined today by our magazine's two biggest bookworms, our reviews editor, Margaret Harris. Hello. And the magazine's editor-in-chief, Martine Durrani. How are you guys doing today? So Martine, I understand that we had an abundance of quality this year. Yeah, I think over the course of the year in physics world, we must have published more than 50 reviews. and 57. 57. 57. There'll be some really great stuff in there, and it's been a particularly uh, great crop this year. Great. Mark, I, I've seen the huge piles of books on your desk throughout the year and the, the books you've got filed away in cabinets around the office. I mean, how, how do you go from having all those books to whittling it down to a, a short list of books of the year? Well, the first thing I'd emphasize is that we don't review books that we find uninteresting. We, we try to pick um, the best books, only the best books to review. And then from those, those books that we've chosen to review, those 57 books this year, uh, we look at the ones that either we, members of staff who reviewed them, or external experts really enjoyed, really found interesting, um, scientifically interesting, novel, and well-written. Those are our three criteria. And then of the books that made that list, we, we kind of you know winnowed down to a sh- this short list of 10 that we uh, presented online a couple weeks back. And then we've uh, then whittled it down further to an even shorter list, I guess you'd say, of four books we're talking about today. So the first book on our shortlist is Serving the Reich, The Struggle for the Soul of Physics Under Hitler by the science writer and journalist Philip Ball. It's an examination of the actions of three physicists in Germany under the rule of Adolf Hitler. Margaret, do you want to tell us what this is all about? Sure. So um, as the, the, the cover implies, it's got a big, great big swastika on there. And it's about three, um, particularly three physicists who lived and worked in Germany during the period when the Nazis came to power and, and even during the, in some cases, during the Second World War that followed. Um, these three people are, are, are Werner Heisenberg, um, Max Planck, and a slightly lesser known physicist, Peter Debye, who um, won a Nobel Prize for chemistry, in fact. So with, I mean, Planck and Heisenberg, they're kind of fairly well-known personalities. Lots have been written about them over the years. But Dubai, like you say, he's perhaps less known. I mean, is, is he an interesting character who's maybe been forgotten by history? Yeah, I wouldn't say he's forgotten by history. He did, he did win a Nobel Prize after all. But he is less well-known to physicists, at least, to physicists in, in, in some areas of, of the field than Heisenberg. Um, Heisenberg, obviously, we know, we know from the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and his role in founding quantum mechanics. And Max Planck, his ro- even earlier role in founding quantum mechanics and his role kind of as an elder statesman of German physics at this time period. Um, Peter Debye, is actually a Dutch national, um, and he left Germany in just before the, the war broke out, essentially, to move to the U.S. And um, there was some debate, actually, over whether he, that move was principled or whether he was just looking for a better job. And th- it's the ambiguity of his role and his attitudes toward the regime that really makes him an interesting case, I think, for Ball. So I suppose we, yeah, we'll, we'll never really know what it was like for these three men you know, living and working under Hitler's rule. But do you get a real sense with the book of how difficult it was for the three of them? Uh, It was difficult. I mean, certainly... um open opposition to the Nazi regime was frowned upon and, uh, you know, could cause you great, great difficulties. But there were some figures, some slight less, um, smaller characters in Paul's book, Max von Lau, who, who was actively resisting um, the Nazi regime and, and didn't sort of 
kowtow to the the demands that were, were made on German science at the time. And also I would say that, that all three of these these people helped Jewish colleagues um, to escape or to, to function in some way, shape or form under the Nazi regime. But as Paul points out, they did so because they were colleagues, because they're personal friends, not because yeah, they had any deep conviction that it was wrong to oppress Jews in any way. So there's this real ambiguous attitude that they all, all um, exhibited, and that's, that's what makes them fascinating. That's what makes this, this period of history fascinating, because there aren't necessarily, you know, there, yes, there are people who are unalloyed good guys and other people who are unalloyed bad guys, but lots more people, um, physicists, scientists in general, occupied this really interesting grey area in the middle. So is it just really a book about a really fascinating period of history or do you think Ball is trying to convey a message to scientists alive today? I think it's absolutely trying to convey a message to scientists today. I think that's what, what really elevates this book above just a, a generally well-written history of a, a very well-written about period. Um, because he really, you know, the last chapter of the book, he really sticks it into the idea that you can be an apolitical scientist. Um, you know, sometimes scientists, you know, being a science above politics, that's held up as an ideal even today. But there are times in history when, when being apolitical just basically means being a collaborator. You know, not standing up against great evil means you're in some sense part of that evil yourself, even if you don't actively participate in it. And, you know, that's that's just as relevant today as it is as it was in the 1930s and 40s. OK, so that's Serving the Reich by Philip Ball. OK, so next on our list is a book called Stuff Matters, The Strange Stories of the Marvellous Materials That Shape Our Man-Made World by Mark Miodovnik, Professor of Material Science and Society at University College London. So this is a book about the amazing materials in our everyday lives that we perhaps sometimes take for granted. So Martina, I know um, when it comes to science writing, a lot of the authors who write about the vastness of space or the weirdness of quantum mechanics, they, they have a head start because people are, you know, they're already fascinated by these subjects. But here, Miodovnik, he's talking about materials in our everyday world that we quite often take for granted, it could have been quite mundane. Has he managed to bring the subject to life? I think he does a really good job at bringing material science to life. And particularly the start of the book is fantastic because he first became interested in materials when he was a teenager travelling on the London Underground and he got knifed by somebody. Um, and it was really that episode of being stabbed in the back, literally stabbed in the back by someone, that made him wonder what, how did this razor blade, as it was, enter his five layers of clothing and slash his skin. How did that happen? And it was really that episode that got him inspired by materials and led him to have a career in material science. And he starts the book with that really dramatic account and takes it from there. And he's, he's got you hanging from that very first couple of pages. So what's it, So he's talking about the, the materials of the, the thing that attacked him then? Is that how it works? He talks about the steel and how that attacked him. And then throughout the course of the book, he takes a different material in each chapter and has a um, starts each chapter with a, an amusing or dramatic episode from his life as an excuse to start talking about different materials that he's that are all around us in everyday life. So as well as steel, I mean, what, what else does he talk about? He does things like chocolate, concrete, plastic, foams, and in fact, his trick in the book is he has a picture on at the start of every chapter in the book, and it's a picture of him sitting on the roof terrace of his flat in London. And it's a fairly mundane picture of him sitting there, but in the picture you can see 10 different materials. So you've got the steel of his chair, the chocolate he's nibbling at, the, co uh, the coffee, the foam on top. You've got um, the paper. 
And he each chapter starts by pointing with a little arrow at a different bit of this picture, and then he, you know what's coming up in that chapter. So what does he say about chocolate then? Well, it's a really fascinating material that um, melts in the mouth between about 32 and 34 degrees centigrade. And because it melts at that funny temperature, it's great to eat because you feel the transition of something going from a, a solid to a liquid in your mouth. And um, he marvels and raves about the beauty of chocolate and how fantastic it is. And he even goes on to say that in some countries where it's very hot, you don't enjoy chocolate as much because you don't have that sense of something very cold being melted in your mouth. So, so, so each chapter basically takes a look at a different material. So yeah, as well as being a nice collection of essays about materials, is there kind of a coherent thread throughout the book? I think the thread is really his fascination with different materials. I don't think he's trying to make any political points other than to convey his excitement and fascination in these materials. And as you said at the start, James, some popular science writers have a real head start because they're talking about Higgs bosons or wormholes or cosmology, which people have a sense of the drama of. And he's saying there's a drama in the everyday. Okay, that's Stuff Matters by Mark Miodovnik. Next up, we've got The Perfect Theory, A Century of Geniuses and the Battle Over General Relativity by Pedro Ferreira, a cosmologist at the University of Oxford. So this is a book about the history and development of Einstein's general theory of relativity and the key characters along the way. So over the years, there's been tons written about Einstein and his great ideas, but there hasn't been quite so much, maybe, about general relativity. Why do you think that is, Margaret? Well, I think it's partly because general relativity, unlike quantum mechanics, is it's really quite an esoteric subject. I mean, it, it describes you need it to, you need that theory to describe you know really weird, strange situations that happen in outer space, you know, with you know, black holes and stars and, and wormholes and things like that. These are not things you come across in your everyday life, and it does have some more general applications. I think it's, it's used in GPS, for example. You know, that, that's that's a kind of a one relatable thing about it, and also a corollary to that is that general relativity isn't isn't a mandatory course even in most physics courses. So, I mean, even quite a lot of physicists won't meet general relativity in their professional lives, or only tangentially, perhaps. And that I think contributes partly to the reason why it's not as much discussed in popular science writing. So, I mean, to, to truly understand the theory, I mean, and of course, there's a lot of maths involved. I mean, does Ferreira resort to including that in the book, or does he manage to explain it with a really nice, coherent narrative? He doesn't include the actual equations of general relativity in the book, but um, he does a wonderful job, I think, of giving you a feel for what it's like to work with these equations, these really complex, non-linear, really hairy, difficult equations, and how difficult it is to get... A sensible answer out of these equations, and so even if you if you've not taken a course in general relativity, if you've not studied in, in the kind of depth that Ferreira and some of the other people in his book have, you really end up if you read the book, you get a feel for what it's like to work with these equations. And I think that's a really excellent example of how to write about a highly technical subject in a non-technical way. So is he just talking about the science itself, or does he delve into the the characters behind the science? I, th- I would say the science is centre stage, but there's uh, so many interesting characters on along the way, and he does talk a lot about so the the contributions that various people made. Everybody from Georges Lemaitre, the the Belgian priest and cosmologist who was contemporary of Einstein, and Carl Schwarzschild, who was the first to work out so the the radius of a black hole, though it wasn't fully understood at the time. Um, And then on into into the sort of golden age of general relativity, it's called, or golden age of cosmology even, uh, the likes of John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking, 
um, Jacob Bekenstein, um, and even some experimentalists, astronomers who who found these odd objects, you know, sort of um, binary pulsars and and things that allowed um, scientists to test general relativity in whole new regimes. Um, so there are a lot of characters in the book, and it's a really rich um, history, intellectual history of a subject. And how about Einstein himself? I mean, did you feel, having read the book, you knew him better as a person or, or perhaps as somebody who, who does science, the way he approached science? Um, it's interesting because um, of all the, the ideas in, in physics, um, probably general relativity is the one that you could most say sort of sprang fully formed from the head of Einstein. You know, it just kind of, there was a, a sort of, uh, you know, music come from the heavens and there they appeared. But you know, even so, Einstein really struggled to to work these equations out, and it was over a period of years that he did it. And you do get a good appreciation of for what that was like for Einstein himself at back in the in the nineteen tens, nineteen fifteen. And then, do you get a sense reading the book that there's still a load of huge questions still unanswered, and that general relativity really still is at the cutting edge of, of theoretical physics? Oh, absolutely. I mean, th- there is some discussion in the books uh, of um, some alternatives to general relativity, um, other theories that might replace it, um, particularly because of the discovery of, of dark matter and dark energy, um, which um, suggests that we, we don't understand our universe nearly as well as, as we thought we did. Um, you know, the book really brings it right up to the present day and suggests that, you know, okay, we've had a century now since the, the, um, since Einstein formulated his equations in 1915 and published a paper about it, but there might not the next century of general relativity might take us off in wholly weird and wonderful directions. So that's the perfect theory by Pedro Ferreira. Okay, so our next book is Wizards, Aliens, and Starships: Physics and Math in Fantasy and Science Fiction by Charles Adler. He's a physics professor at St Mary's College of Maryland. So this is a book that looks at the plausibility of some of the ideas from fantasy and, and science fiction. So as a physics professor, I mean, perhaps the, the obvious thing to have done would have been to sat down and write a standard textbook, or, or if you like sci-fi, you could have perhaps had a stab at writing a, a sci-fi novel. But instead, Adler's written this analysis of the science in science fiction. So, I mean, why did he take that approach, do you think, Mateen? Well, he starts the book by saying when he grew up as a kid in the 70s and 80s, he absolutely had a great love for science fiction and fantasy. And he always wondered how plausible was the science that features in those novels and films. And he wished there'd been a book that would have explained it to him. And because there wasn't, he decided to write it himself. And that's what this book is. So you can give us a few examples of the, of the science he takes apart. Well, he goes through the, the classic things like time travel and interstellar propulsion. Uh, but there was one really great example that I liked, which was he calculates how realistic it would be in the Harry Potter books, the, the, the Great Hall in Hogwarts, how realistic that would be to have it lit up by candles. And he does this calculation of how much energy a, ca- a candle requires and how much it would burn and how much it would cost. And he reckons he comes up with this calculation of a, a million dollar lighting bill just to keep the um, illumination of the Great Hall going. Probably the studio's paid for it in the film. So I mean, w- one of the things um, that occurred to me straight away is that this could be a fantastic resource for teachers if they could lift these examples and include them in their lessons. I mean, is, would that be something that could easily be done by, by physics teachers? Absolutely. I mean, the book has some really good online teaching resources to go with it. In fact, the book is pretty much aimed at physicists, even though the author says it's for not physicists. I pretty much think that this is a book for physicists, and that's why it's on our shortlist, because we think that physicists will love this book. It really is a book for physicists, by physicists. In fact, there are lots of equations which are numbered and will make physicists feel really at home. Mm. On the other hand, it isn't kind of the joy of of science fiction is that, you know, as a reader, you know it's 
not realistic. It's just pure escapism. I mean, do, do we really need a, you know, a smart Alec physicist to come along and point out all the flaws? Well, the interesting point that Adler makes in the book is that the really best science fiction is science fiction that is um, internally consistent. So it might have some rules that disobey the laws of physics, but if it consistently does that, that's much more effective than science fiction where it's all just all over the place. In fact, he has a bit of a criticism of Harry Potter and the, like J.K. Rowling, who, who isn't internally consistent in the way she tackles the science. Does he recommend any, any science fiction in, in, in the book? He does have his own personal preferences in, in the examples that he uses. I mean, it is actually a shame that the film Interstellar came out after the book was published, because there's a film that I think Adler really would have been able to get his teeth stuck into. OK, so that's Wizards, Aliens and Starships by Charles Adler. Okay, so that's four books from our shortlist. Um, really interesting reads in there. I mean, it must be, must be really difficult this year, Margaret, to actually pick a winner. Oh, James, it was absolutely agonising. We've been doing the shortlist, I think this is the sixth year we've, we've done a shortlist of books of the year, and I don't remember there being a stronger one out there. There's some fantastic books we haven't talked about in this podcast that I really urge you to you check out. Um, books from every area of physics, from geophysics to acoustic science to material science that we talked about today. A really great book about the quantum side of Einstein. Again, some, not, not something we got on, onto in this podcast, but some really fantastic books. You feel the same, too? Yeah, it was a pretty good, pretty good list this year, um, and it was quite hard picking the winner, um, but we did in the end. So yes, we have chosen a winner. It was absolutely agonising. As I said, I don't remember there being a stronger shortlist. We had lots of discussions and lots of arguments over which which these books should win. In the end, we've gone with Stuff Matters by Mark Miodovnik, and we've chosen this because it seemed to really fit all of our criteria, being well-written, scientifically interesting to physicists, and novel. And I think it was scored particularly highly on the novel side, because as we, as we discussed earlier, there just aren't that many books, not, let alone any really good books, written about material science. And it's, it's a, it's, that's a terrible shame, because as Miodovnik shows in this book, it's a fascinating area of science. In, in a, you know, it incorporates all these, these things from, from everyday life, um, you know, the idea that you have to be inspired into science by some really esoteric thing, you know, space travel or something like that, you know, that works for some people and that's fantastic. But there are other people who are going to be inspired by stuff that you see around you every day. And I think that's, that Miodovnik really captures that in this book. In fact, I, I got the, caught, up, I caught up with Miodovnik earlier this year and I asked him if he felt like he was flying the flag for more applied science in popular science market. And here's what he said. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of books about quantum mechanics and there are a lot of books about relativity and there are a lot of books about biology and there aren't many books about engineering and materials and I feel like that I, I, in a way I'm lucky right because that made my book kind of stand out and what a rich theme it is it's kind of baffling to me that there aren't more books in that area because this is this is a part of human expression that isn't getting you know isn't getting vocalized through books if that's not <laughs> a sort strange way of putting it but anyway um yeah, uh, and, I, and, I, and I try and work out why that is, and I think that a lot of people who go into engineering are not at all almost that, that the written word is, and, and communication is somehow means that you can't be a very good engineer if you're doing that, and I, it's just totally untrue. And, and I think we need, to, we need to encourage more people to, to basically put pen to paper who are great engineers. People who make things can also write about them. So you mentioned engineering in that clip, but I know there's a lot of interesting fundamental physics in these materials as well. Does that come across in the book? Absolutely. I mean, James, I mentioned the chocolate before, which is a really complex and fascinating material. Um, but another one I really liked was where he uh, describes biting on something really hard and it completely cracks his tooth and sends pain waves throughout his mouth. And of course, 
what do you do when you have a broken tooth? You go to the dentist and have a filling. And fillings are made from alloys, which are metal alloys. And they, they themselves have some really fascinating properties. Um, so, you know, the, he uses those really personal experiences to take you on this journey through material science. He does something similar with paper, actually. His example for paper, his introduction for paper, is a receipt from, I think, the curry that he, he bought for his wife shortly before the, the birth of their son, because, you know, see these old folk tales that tell you to eat curry to, to bring on the birth. And that piece of paper then becomes th- this, you know, sort of a relic of that time of his life. But it's also a very transient thing, because this particular type of paper, receipts, that they don't last very long. They, they, they decay, they deteriorate. And so that leads him into this, this fascinating discussion of how the, sort of the ephemeral nature of memory and the way you sort of go from science to society to these you know, big ideas was really an excellent, excellent, excellent technique. I mean, he sounds like a bit of a character and if, if not slightly accident prone. But I mean, do you think there is a, an appetite out there in the public to hear from other uh, material scientists? Or, or is this just a one-off? It's a fantastically written book about a novel topic. If they can write as well as me at and then absolutely I think there's an appetite to, to hear more about this, this type of thing. And actually, Margaret, I find it really interesting that he talks about himself quite a lot in the book. And I think it's often a flaw of popular science books, if I can call it that, that people don't put the personal element in. And he, he has no problems doing that. And I think it makes it all the more interesting. He seems like a real normal person. Well... He obviously has quite a few accidents in his life, but as a person... Normal's not quite the right word, but yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? He seems fairly sort of um, not nerdy or geeky and quite a fun person to be with, lots Mm. of stories. Mm. So there you have it, folks. Our book of the year, 2014, is Stuff Matters by Mark Miodovnik. Congratulations to him and all the other writers on our shortlist. And thanks, Martina Margaret, for the debate. You can see the full shortlist of our books of the year on our website, physicsworld.com where you can also read book reviews taken from Physics World, which is published every month. If you have any comments about the books we've discussed, feel free to post them on Twitter, where our handle is at Physics World. So thanks for joining us today, and please come back in 2015, when we'll have plenty more podcasts for you to enjoy. Goodbye. Physics World.